0: Welcome to The Hub Dialogues, a podcast that celebrates big thinkers and bold ideas about a better future for all of us. I'm Rudyard Griffiths, the executive director of The Hub, Canada's leading source for analysis and insights on public policy. Our goal at The Hub is to escape the opinion bubbles of conventional conversation and prod our popular discourse back to the issues and ideas that matter that can shape our collective future. On The Hub Dialogues, you'll hear Sean Spear, our editor-at-large, in conversation with some of the world's sharpest minds and brightest thinkers about the issues and ideas they're passionate about, and that they think we should spend more time focusing on. The next voice you'll hear is that of Sean Spear in conversation with our guest.
1: Enjoy this Hub Dialogue. Welcome to Hub Dialogues. I'm your host, Sean Spear, editor-at-large at at The Hub. I'm honored to be joined today by Tasha Kierenden, a public affairs consultant, political commentator, and co-chair of Jean Charest's leadership campaign for the Conservative Party of Canada. She's also the author of the interesting new book, Right Path, How Conservatives Can Unite, Inspire, and Take Canada Forward. I'm grateful to speak with her about the book, its key ideas, and their implications for the future of Canadian conservative politics. Tasha, thanks for joining us at Hub Dialogues, and congratulations on the book.
2: Oh, thank you so much, Sean. I appreciate it. It's great to be here.
1: I want to start a bit different than usual today. Conservatives love to debate amongst themselves about philosophy and ideas. If you spend enough time with a group of conservatives, you'll invariably hear disputes about Burke and Hayek and Ayn Rand and Bill Buckley and and so on. Although these distinctions may have a useful meaning for conservatives, they won't mean much to most people. Tasha, your book uses a lot of shorthands to describe different ideas and persuasions on the right that are ultimately key to your overall argument. I'd like to spend a minute defining them. At different times in the books, you refer to centrists and center right, progressive conservatives, and red Tories and and populists. Do you want to help us understand what these terms mean to you and how they differ?
2: Okay, so we'll start with the first basket you mentioned. Center right uh, generally describes voters who adhere to fiscal conservative policies. So they will believe, for example, in smaller government, lower taxes, uh, less intervention, less regulation more of a market economy approach, uh, but they would not be what you would call socially conservative. So they would not be in favor, for example, of restrictions on abortion rights. They would not be in favor of restrictions on LGBTQ rights. Uh, They would not necessarily adhere perhaps to as religious uh, perspective in terms of politics uh, as someone who's socially conservative and believes that faith would dictate some moral concepts or government policies. So that is a distinction that's made because um, we have, as you mentioned, within the conservative family, many different stripes of conservatism. And some people feel that social conservatism, uh, like I said, a more faith-based view of the world, is their the where, where they come to conservatism, because that is one of the pillars of original Burkean, as you mentioned, uh, Edmund Burke's conservatism was faith. Others come from a perspective, like I said, of the free enterprise piece, which is the centre-right, uh, smaller government piece. We still have others. The red Tories, you mentioned, are an interesting species. They're unique to Canada, and um, they are uh, people who sort of developed, I guess the term developed in the 1960s, if I'm not mistaken, was coined then. And it describes um, conservatives who, who are a bit more big government conservative, They are still fiscally responsible, but they have kind of hewed to a sense of the government replacing what used to be called the uh, noblesse oblige or the nobility aristocracy in England, the more stratified view of society where the wealthy would give to the poor, give back to the poor, and um, it was called at that time high Toryism. There are a lot of terms, I agree, but high Toryism was a term which described an obligation uh, of the nobility to care for people who were less fortunate and In Canada, that was subsumed into the welfare state. So red Tories had a view that government had this greater role in society to provide for the unfortunate. That became part of our lexicon in the 60s. So you have red Tories who would be a little more pro-government than a centre-right or fiscal conservative. So all these species live together in the conservative family. Traditionally, they come together most often around the economic concepts of conservatism. That's really the most common rallying point. But there are other elements of conservatism that are also incredibly important, Um, you know, freedom of the individual and freedom of speech, uh, personal freedoms and liberties, but also a sense of community. That's a piece that's often lost in the conversation today, responsibility of people to each other. And it's a very conservative concept, the idea also that local government, local community, the little platoons of society like the family or for faith-based conservatives, their religious organizations are important to this sort of organic whole. We all work together, so it is not, um, as some people would say, you know, they paint conservatism as just uh, uh, you know a pro-business or 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 just cut cut and slash and burn everything. It's not at all. It really is about relationships, and that's the part that I think we have to get back to a lot in talking about conservatism, with regard to populism. Populism is very different. Populism usually arises when there's this sort of lack of social mobility or a sense of people being trapped or blocked, not able to get ahead. And unfortunately, they tend to often blame groups in society or elites, as we're, we're doing now. But it is a sense of frustration that there's a disconnect between government and the people. And populism is supposedly the will of the people. But as we know, it's never the will of all the people. It's always a subset of people who get particularly agitated about something that is that they are feeling uh, that they are hard done by and that usually carries the wave, will carry other people or appeal to a particular party as a way to get votes. Uh, Brexit was an example of populism in the UK. Donald Trump is an example of populism in the US. Bolsonaro is an example of populism in Brazil. And we've also seen some very bad examples of populism throughout history. You know, I'm not delegitimizing populism, Uh, I think it's actually a very normal human reaction to circumstances within society and usually bad economic ones. But at the same time, it is not ideological. It's not philosophical. It is a reaction to a situation and conservatism actually does not subscribe to populism. Conservatism was born out of a reaction to the French Revolution, which was the ultimate populist uprising where people literally lost their heads. So all these terms, I don't want to be complicated. But this is really where we're coming from in terms of the dialogue between populism and conservatism. They are are very different, but they both seek the betterment of society just in very different ways.
1: Okay, there's a lot there. It's a good table setting, though, because, as I said, these different terms are really kind of foundational to the book's insights and analysis. I want to pick up your point about the compatibility or lack of compatibility between populism and conservatism you describe the current leadership race as, quote, a battle between populism and conservatism that's playing out in a proxy fight between Pierre Polyev and Jean Charest. But you also observe that historically populism, quote, did take the progressive conservative party in new and sometimes highly successful directions, including under the leadership of Jean Diefenbaker. So I'll have you just elaborate a bit based on your working definition. How should we think about populism and conservatism? And are they ultimately irreconcilable?
2: When you look at the history of Canada, populism has infused the conservative or slash the right of center political movement for the better part of 100 years. We've had different parties, progressives in the 1920s and 30s. And then um, we had the uh, Socred Social Credit Party, which formed the government provincially, both in Alberta and British Columbia. Um, also had sort of cousins in Quebec, uh, le Crédit Social, which um, never formed government but were you know, part of the part of the picture, so to speak, at the provincial level too. And these parties um were all populist. In fact, populism in Canada is really centered mostly in the west. The Quebec piece was was not an anomaly. It, it, it was a sort of a mirror of its its western cousin. But things started in the west, and it's partly a reaction. I think in Canada, populism has been a reaction to the establishment, which it usually is. Populism is usually an anti elite or anti establishment movement. And the the establishment in Canada was considered to be the Laurentian elites, people from the east, Ontario, Quebec, to an extent Atlantic Canada too, but really mostly Ontario, Quebec, and you still feel that populism in the West is rooted still in that. I, I was in Calgary most recently for my book launch, and you know, the, the, I talked to folks uh, in the Conservative Party and the movement there, and who felt still very hard done by equalization, sending money to Eastern Canada, don't like Quebec. You know, I encountered. Quite a bit of that, to be honest. And, you know, as someone from Quebec, it, it it's important to understand that that is there. It's it's disheartening. That is still an issue for Canada so many years later, but it is still a reality. We have to acknowledge that, and politicians have to acknowledge that. So populism grows from this. John D. as you pointed out, was really the only Canadian conservative or progressive conservative, in his case, prime minister. And progressive conservatives, I didn't address that, but it was a marriage so to speak, of the Progressive Party and the Conservative Party in 1948, I think, was a convention where they officially came together. The progressives also infused the Liberal Party. Like, they didn't all go to the Tories. It was, it was sort of a, a more um, socially progressive, as I said, not socially conservative, socially progressive uh, view of the world that merged with the Conservative Party. And he was the only progressive, progressive conservative leader of a populist stripe to take the party to power, he really did so on the basis of a sort of pro-immigration and, you know, in the 1950s and 57 and 58, when he got his majority, the sense that Canada was um, moving beyond simply the English-French dialogue that, that or, and history that had infused it until that point. The problem today with populism is that around the world, as we've seen, populism has become associated with many negative elements, um, with far right, with extremist points of view, Donald Trump in the United States. This sort of really now really anti-abortion movement in the United States as well, that the Republicans have sort of become the populist party. They've taken up that mantle. So for conservatives in Canada, we're being faced with all these currents that have really little to do with our domestic politics. They're very different. Canadian and American conservatism evolved very differently. You know, Canada's always dealt with this duality, keeping the country together, national unity. The United States has had a very different history, um, history uh, in terms of their relationship with slavery and other issues that are much greater part of their history than they were in Canada. So, you know, we we have a unique brand of conservatism, and that's why populism here, people are reacting to it many very negatively um, because they see it as bringing in American points of view or American style polarization to the country. Other people really embrace populism here. We've seen. You know, Pierre Polyev has recruited many, many members, and and there's a reason for that. So we're having this debate right now about where populism fits in Canada. We haven't really reached, I think, the end point. But what I say in the book is that you can address populist issues, the sense of discontent and being blocked in your aspirations in life, with conservative solutions. You don't have to resort to the sort of slogans and rhetoric we've seen south of the border or in other places.
1: I want to stay on the topic of intra-conservative tensions you write in the book's introduction that conservatives must ultimately, quote, find common ground if they are to effectively compete for power. Let me ask a two-part question. First, isn't there pretty compelling evidence that Polio's agenda and message is the source of considerable party unity? And second, what parts of his program, which to be fair to him, is pro migration pro pro-same-sex marriage, and pro-choice, do you take exception to? Is it, in other words, Tasha, more about rhetoric and style, than it is about substance?
2: It's both. And like I say in the book, the book isn't about who should lead the party. It's about how the party should lead the country. But you're right. I mean, the currents of populism and conservatism are sort of incarnated by different candidates in this race. And Mr. Polyev is definitely incarnating the populist side. You know, it it is, I'll start with some of the substance. It is partly the focus on issues that, While there are many issues like inflation and others that are important, it is the, I guess, the approach to them and the sense that if you remove the elites, remove the gatekeepers, it's not just, you know, uh, slogans, because when you look at, the website of the campaign and other things, we you, you will find very little substantive policy, but the, the thrust is the same way. It's that there are people in the way. They have to be removed. You have to get rid of gatekeepers. That if you just, you know, you get rid of the people at the top of the Bank of Canada, for example, yeah, we'll get better decision-making. That you have to uh, attack institutions. There are certain things I agree with in his platform, no question. There's common ground on things like, you know, culture and other Parts that conservatives will agree on, and the issues he mentions are important ones to tackle. But it's a sense of 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 policy that comes from a place of tearing down, and I'm not sure what's going to be built up. And that's very common to populists. It's it's a it's you know, it's that you gotta replace what's there with something else, but that something else is not completely defined. And it's also rooted in usually a sense, like I said, of being hard done by and grievance. In Pierre's case, vaccine mandates are a big part of that. Freedom conversation has really moved over from what's traditionally a conservative view of freedoms and liberty, uh, sort of more grand vision. If you go to Reagan's call to tear down the wall to, you know, Gorbachev or, you know, personal freedoms of of people who are really oppressed by their governments. Think today, for example, in China, people are incredibly oppressed there's people who need freedom in, back in the day, South Africa, where, where, where Blacks were kept down for so long. That's a call for free. That's what conservatives took up, right? Vaccine mandates are a concept of freedom that are an issue of freedom that not everyone in this country subscribes to and says that, you know, it, it's not the same. It's not an assault on your freedom so grievous that it really rises to the same level. But, you know, the convoy, as I talk about it, has become very much associated with Mr. Polyev's candidacy and support for it. And it is a very divisive point in Canada. And you look at polling, you know, you will see clear divisions, especially within different parties on where they stand on this. So the problem I have is that it associates the conservative movement and freedom with that movement and its grievances. And it is hopefully a limited time window. The pandemic won't be here forever. And secondly, it is very alienating to a lot of people who see dog whistles, who see American stuff in there, who you know saw various elements, Trump flags, and this kind of thing. And yet they were limited in the protest, but still the fact that they were associated with it makes people uncomfortable in the center right and blue liberal space. So the problem with that is you, you will attract some voters, no question, on the side of the, the further right or you know, the, the populist vein, you will alienate others in the center, right, where there's a lot of opportunity for us to grow. So that's my issue with populism, the way it's playing out. It's not populism itself so much as the problem as the way that it's being used in the campaign and the both the rhetoric and the substance of it to attract people.
1: I'll come back to your point about how to reach new and different voters, because that's a pretty fundamental part of the book. But before we get there, I want to take up the proposition personified by Mr. Sherey you make the case in the book that, quote, Charest would likely remake the party in the image of the former Progressive Conservative Party. Again, let me ask a two-part question. First, do you think there's a large enough constituency within the Conservative Party to go back in that direction? And second, what would you say to the argument that Erin O'Toole actually represented that political approach and it ultimately failed?
2: Okay, I'll tackle the second one first, uh, which is Erin O'Toole represented center-right conservatism. Um, He did and he didn't. When he ran for the leadership, he ran as a blue Tory. You know, true blue, I think it was actually a slogan. So there were expectations of where he would land politically. And then he pivoted more to the center-right. I think the environmental issue, you know, when he was at the policy convention of the conservative party and there was a defeat of a resolution to recognize climate change. And he came out and said, you know, climate change is real and words to that effect there was a sign there was a disconnect between what people thought he was going to stand for and what he did. Uh, And so that got the ball rolling on this piece of, you know, where's the party going to go? My understanding is also the way policies were rolled out, um, including on that issue, there was not as much consultation within caucus, people were unhappy. So there were internal issues too. But then during the election, he kind of played both sides and flip-flopped on issues like, um, you know, gun, uh, gun laws Urban policies. People in cities were were kind of confused. Like, where does he stand on on these things? And so it was more that he tried to pivot, but people in the end of the day didn't feel that he was genuine. is different because he is running as how he is, and he's not going to pivot. You know, I, I've known the guy for 30 years. Uh, this is who he is, and I think Pierre is also running as who he is. So I think that actually in this in this race, you're getting archetypes and people who are running in in the way they would govern. So that is actually healthy for the party to know that because ambiguity is killer. You have to be authentic. Um, Jean Charest does incarnate what I would call the progressive conservative or center-right vision of, of what conservatism is. It's a big tent vision. Um, the difference, one of the pillars is law and order is a difference that has been pretty starkly drawn between Polyev's approach and Charest's approach. Law and order is a central tenet of conservatism, and that is where a lot of people felt the convoy broke faith with what conservatism is. And a respect for institutions, tradition, what has come before, incremental change as opposed to wholesale, it's throw the bums out attitude. Jean Charest is very much about the respect for those institutions, and yes, reform where necessary, but not the sort of aggressive attack on them that some people feel that the convoy represented. He also has a track record of policies on the centre-right. When he was Premier of Quebec, he was a Liberal because that was the party that was on the more right in Quebec and would have been classified as centre or centre-right. You know, he had a good record on deficit reduction, on uh, reducing the debt. He put in policies there to do that in the long term. He uh, was also, you know, he's he's lowered taxes. He's he's not a big government conservative. Under the government of Brian Mulroney, as well, you know, he was he championed free trade and he championed policies that were, obviously, what we consider conservatism today. So he has this conservative track record, but on social issues, he's definitely progressive. Um, and in Quebec, you know, you, I say this in the book on the issue of abortion, for example, Stephen Harper had it right, and Joshua would do the same. You just don't know. Don't go there. Do not touch it. It is settled. Many people won't want to hear that, but I'm saying it because if you want to get any votes in Quebec, if you want to get votes in in more progressive uh, urban areas, you are not going to get them if you are ambiguous about abortion or if you say you're going to reopen that debate. It is just not going to happen. So that is something that is, for the Conservative Party, some people will find a hard pill to swallow, but There are other ways of pleasing social conservatives and recognizing their contribution and what they need within the conservative family that do not involve that issue that conservatives should pursue, and Jean would pursue those. He's very pro-family. Family is another pillar of conservatism, a definite tenet of that. And you know, there's generally speaking, his approach to it is very much in line with how the former progressive conservative government approached things, but. He does also recognize the need for national unity in the country, and that is that is an issue that is always overarching in Canadian politics. It doesn't matter if you're a Liberal, a Conservative, or other. It is one of the fundamental challenges our country has. It's a bigger challenge for Conservatives because you see this division between the sort of more populist West and the more progressive Conservative East. And how do you square that circle has become, I think, the real conversation of his leadership is how do you do that? It's um it's something that that we are grappling with as a nation once
1: again. How much of the differences that you describe in the book reflect generational change? That is to say, to what extent is the real fault line here less about conservatism, populism, or progressive conservative and reform, and more about conservatives who came of age politically before and after, say, the end of the Cold War?
2: Yeah, it's a very good question because generationally, you know, there's assumptions about how millennials and, and Gen Z behave that the research does not bear out. People, of course, don't remember certain things. People, you know, Gen Z and millennials will not, will not relate necessarily to the conversations even around national unity, um, never mind around uh, the conservatism of Ronald Reagan or Margaret Thatcher, um, you know, the Cold War reality. They, they don't remember that, obviously. They weren't around. But what you do see is these two generations have been affected by economic issues certainly as well as um woke culture and the actions of the left and Justin Trudeau in particular and we haven't talked about him but his influence very much on how people see the role of government and how those generations see government in their lives millennials are less conservative a generation than gen z it's very interesting there's about 20% of them, um, according to a very interesting embryonic study that I cite in the in the book, and other research too that I talk to and interviews with millennials and and Gen Zs, that they are about 20% of them are accessible, consider themselves center right. Another 20% are potentially accessible, but are concerned about issues like the environment, and things that conservatives of a previous generation may have been less aware or, or or impacted by. So they've been impacted by these issues. They they matter to them. So when you're reaching out to those voters, conservatives have to realize, if they're a previous generation, that that stuff is on the radar, and they have to understand who they're talking to within the millennials. It's not all millennials. That Most millennials are left. They lean left. This is just a fact that people probably don't want to hear, but it is true. But there are about 40% that if you, you target right and you really listen to what they have to say, you can get Gen Z is different. You've got about forty-eight percent of Gen Zs who consider themselves right of center. It's a very polarized generation. It doesn't surprise me. They're very much engaged in social media, which is an extremely polarizing environment. They also have been affected by things like, you know, they, they I mean, both generations lived through the two thousand eight, two thousand nine financial crisis, but Gen Zs are coming into an environment where they are feeling very much that you know they're very much a striving generation, and they're they're either very woke or very not. They're running into this at university. You know, many I spoke to said, woke culture is what woke me up to conservatism. I reacted against it. I did not like it. So the social environment we're in right now, actually for conservatives, they're better defined. It's kind of like political correctness in the 1980s. That's what woke culture is like today. And I remember political correctness in the 80s. You know, it it was a polarizing force. It drove many people to conservatism. So you're seeing that that generation is very accessible. And the problem is only part of them can vote right now. You know, it's under 24. So 18 to 24 year olds can vote. It's Not a lot of people. But over the longer term, this is a generation conservatives have to connect with because they will be the dominant demographic group in about 10 to 15 years, if I'm not mistaken. So that's really, I think, this generational issue. That's what Pierre Polyev does, does connect with some of the Gen Zs, in particular, on the issues of personal freedom and this kind of thing. And you know, younger people also love freedom. Let's be honest, it's, it resonates with them. But in the longer term, like I said, issues of vaccine mandates and stuff will not be around forever. So I think we need to connect with them on other things as well to keep them in the fold.
0: You're one click away from getting access to all the hub's best analysis and insights. Go to our website, www.thehub.ca, and sign up for our daily email newsletter, per diem. Each morning at 7 a.m. Eastern, in your inbox, you'll receive the cutting-edge thinking and analysis of our smartest contributors, all curated for you based on the issues and ideas that are moving the public conversation. Sign up now free of charge at www.thehub.ca. Now back to our program.
1: In the book's first chapter, you cite Stephen Harper and Tom Flanagan to describe a shift in Canadian electoral coalitions, whereby high-income professionals who used to be reliable conservatives have shifted to the left, and working-class voters who you describe as, quote, tradespeople, small business owners, blue-collar and retail workers, have increasingly moved to the right. This trend isn't unique to Canada either. It reflects a broader political realignment occurring across the Western world. If one accepts this realignment is indeed occurring, And conservative voters are no longer the same ones as say the 1970s and 1980s how tasha should that be reflected in the conservative party's messages and policies
2: so stephen harper identified this and flanagan too it's about how it's the sort of what we what we call them a bit of a laptop culture today but it's really the government culture um the shift was that the relationship of professionals to government changed government became a bigger actor you know, if you think about people who work at universities, um, or who may work in the private sector, but are consultants, and now are, you know, hired by government, government took a larger role in that sort of quotes, unquotes university educated class, uh, in terms of, of their professional advancement. The arts is another really big area, obviously. So you've got people who then basically depended on a relationship with government to work and to advance their careers. And so this is this symbiosis made it more attractive for them to embrace policies of the government, which tended to be most of the time liberal, right? Um, conservatives have not held power for the majority of, of the last 40 years. So you've got a growth of this class of professionals. They concentrate in cities, which is partly why the conservatives don't do well in urban areas. And they also dominate in certain areas like media, for example, and and their voices dominate. So what you get end up getting is this perfect storm of conservatives saying, you know what, those people will never vote for us. Or those people say themselves, I don't identify with the conservative party because they're very different from me. This is a problem um, because, yes, you do then have this class division that, that ends up happening. You do see people of the working class, so to speak, um, or small business people, people who are not as dependent on government, government contracts or government relationships for their for their work in fact, who might butt up against government and say, oh, you're overregulating me. Or, you know, like in the case of of professionals who come from other countries and can't get their credentials regulated, they're angry at, you know, bodies, quasi-judicial bodies or whatever, that they're like, you're in my way. This is the whole gatekeeper's argument, right? And these folks say, well, government's away, as opposed to government is my friend. And so what you've got now is an appeal to those people, and especially post-pandemic, many of whom were hurt more by the pandemic than the laptop class. They worked from home. Government workers weren't thrown out of work. But if you had a hair salon, you couldn't open it. So this whole environment has accelerated this the disconnect that's sort of already happening. So for conservatives, there's a natural tendency to say we're going to reach out over here to the people who've been hard done by and you know that's going to be our base. I think you, you, you should do that, but you can't ignore, and this is where the populism and conservatism thing comes in, and you can't ignore also the professionals over here because the reason that they've become more friendly to government is because government has taken up so much space. Government doesn't have to take up that much space. In fact, it shouldn't, and that's one of the, the issues that Trudeau you know, exacerbated in, in the government is your friend. We're going to throw money at the problem. We're going to give money to the middle class. Everything will be better. Actually, made things worse economically. And we're entering an era where government has no money, right? We're over a trillion dollars in debt. Government is not going to be your friend because it just cannot be. So I think there's gonna be a weaning, in a sense, of that class from government. They're gonna start to say, Wait, wait a minute. I can't rely on government either. So I think conservatives will be able to connect more perhaps with those people as well, and they need to, especially in urban because if conservatives don't get votes in suburbs and urban centers, they're done, right? I mean, that's that's where the growth people are, are moving to. And so there has to be both. You have to reach out to both groups and you can't pit them against each other, which is a lot of what's happened within this populism versus conservatism dialogue. You have to find common ground for both. And to me, the common ground is opportunity. I talk about that in the book. It's not the freedom language, but opportunity. People want opportunity to live their lives, to, to buy that house, get the job they want, have a better future for their kids. That language is common to both groups and I think could be used to meet their needs and get their votes, obviously, which, which conservatives need to do.
1: A major idea in the book is that the Conservative Party is going to have to grow its support if it's to consistently compete for power in national elections. You see what you describe as, quote, blue liberals is key to growing uh, the party's support Pierre Polyev, by contrast, seems to be targeting supporters of the People's Party of Canada as a a potential source of growth for the Conservative Party of Canada. Why is he wrong and you're right? What evidence is there for a critical mass of disaffected liberals who are accessible to the Conservative Party?
2: Okay, well, I'll enter a couple of things that have happened in recent days. Actually, a poll just came out from Angus Reid that showed quite clearly that if you have the archetypes, Sharae and Poliev elected or, or as leader, where would votes go? And what you do see is definitely under a Polyev government um, or a Poliev party, Conservative party, you would have an uptake from the People's Party. Their their numbers drop significantly, but you do not see that. You see the Liberals, the gap with the Liberals is much smaller. Uh, the Liberals still have 29%, even the Conservatives would have 34%, which means that the Conservatives, based on the last election, if you look they had 34% of the popular vote at that time, would not form government, likely. The gap is smaller. They pull from, like you said, the PPC. If you had a Shire, uh, you know, more center-right conservative government, you see that the liberal numbers dropped. I think it's 25 is like a nine point gap. Charade still has 34%. But the, he pulls from the blue liberals. I call them blue liberals because that's what they call themselves. You know, Bill Morneau is a recent example of someone who came out and said, my government wasn't, right enough for me, basically, said they weren't focused on prosperity. It was just redistribution. That's all Trudeau's about. And he was, you know, bemoaning this. And I, I, you know, could give you 100 anecdotal stories of people from the Liberal Party who have connected with various campaigns, including the Sheree campaign, and said, you know what? We don't feel at home anymore. We feel like our party's gone off to the left with the NDP. And this is terrible. We're homeless. And Josh Reyes himself said there's homeless liberals out there. This is a relatively new phenomenon, but it doesn't surprise me because the party, the the Liberal Party, has veered very, very left. So these are people who are traditional switch voters, mostly liberal, but they are fiscally inclined to the same policies as as centrist or, or, um, you know, right of center politics. So those are the voters I think that the, the Tories have the biggest pull towards. And the gap that you see in the polling shows between what the Liberal vote would be and what the Conservative vote would be in that situation shows the Conservatives could form a government. Because the issue with the Tories is vote distribution, right? There's, their vote distribution is very concentrated in the West, in rural areas. That is unhelpful. They need to broaden that base out to GTA and Quebec and other places where Liberals are winning by like 3 4%, right? But that 3 4% you could capture and then you could take those seats. And Harper did that in 2011 right? He divided the left and conquered. So we have to do the same. Uh, The royal we here being the conservative party has to do the same if it's going to form government.
1: Let's come to the theme of opportunity, which as you say, Tasha, is key to the arguments in the book. You make the case that conservatives should root their message and policies in a vision of broad-based opportunity rather than freedom. I broadly agree with this idea. As a parent, I'm motivated by opportunity for my son rather than freedom as an abstract idea. But at times, it's hard to discern what you mean by opportunity and how it would manifest itself in a particularly conservative policy agenda. What, in your view, would represent an opportunity agenda? And how would it differ from, say, Pierre Polyev's vision, or even Justin Trudeau's vision, for that matter?
2: Okay, so starting with Trudeau's vision, um, Trudeau's vision is the vision of that was articulated in uh, Christopher Freeland's book, Plutocrats. It's a leveling vision. It is not a vision of raising people up. It's a vision of redistribution. So it's prioritizing groups based on identity or class or, um, you know, personal politics and saying a feminist agenda is the perfect thing. It's like, we are going to, I'm going to be a feminist and I'm going to appeal to women and we're going to put a feminist on the budget and all will be well. And what does that mean? It means that you are basing your politics on the needs of one group over others And it's not to say that, you know, women's views shouldn't be considered and and impact of policies on women shouldn't be considered. But the the way it's portrayed is definitely is 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 voter calculus, but also uh, a calculus of government is the friend to you and it's anti-opportunity because it's not about equality of opportunity. It's about who you are. The flip side is what populists hate, which is it's about who you know. Right. So if you're a third generation Torontonian Canadian who knows everyone in certain, you know, professions or business, your family does, then you'll get ahead because you'll be privileged and prioritized over other people who maybe new Canadians don't know anyone, or are just, you know, from a from middle class family, don't have those connections. So on both ends of the spectrum, you get the sense of like the elites are favored over here, or identity politics is played over here. And that is a recipe for uh, lack of social mobility and a sense of social frustration. Populism feeds off that on the one side because they blame the elites for it. And uh, Trudeau and, and woke culture feeds off the other side because they they basically say this is, you know, government. it's Government's the one that's going to fix it, not the private sector. You can't leave it to people because their judgment is not what it should be. So in the middle of all this, I say, are the common sense Canadians. We're looking around going... This is not, neither side of this really appeals to me. The populist anger against the least doesn't appeal to me. The woke stuff doesn't appeal to me. Where's my political home? And this is what I say in the book about opportunity is that most people are just looking to get ahead. They are not, they're looking for a fair outcome and a fair outcome can be unequal. Not everyone is going to end up in the same place, but if you all have the same shot, if it's considered that the game is not rigged in favor of X or Y, you will be satisfied with the result. And this is not just me talking. There's research that's been done. Um, I cite a recent book by Eric Protzer and David Somerville, who's, who's at the University of Victoria. Protzer is an American researcher. And they found that the lack of social mobility is really what feeds populism. It's a sense that you cannot get ahead even if you do all the right things, and that that's not fair. And they say that policies about equality of opportunity can take different forms, but essentially a government that favors that That provides sort of a floor, if you will, of, you know, basic things like healthcare, education. These are essential for people to have a certain measure of if they're going to have a fair shot and an equal chance to other people. So there's it's not about about redistributing income. It's about essentially ensuring there's a floor for opportunity. And then people are left to their own devices to take from that and do what they can to achieve their their goals or their family's goals but you have to have a perception that you're not favoring someone simply based on identity or connections or other things. And then people will feel like they have a fair shot. And the conservatives have been about equality of opportunity since the day of Edmund Burke. He even talked about it in 1789, that this fair shot should be part of of what conservatives are about. So to me, that's really where we should go. Yes, you need a certain measure of freedom to do that. But like I said, the call for freedom has become associated with elements that some people find very negative right now, So, language matters. And I say, wrap it in a bow of opportunity, and people will be much more open to what you're talking about.
1: Let's wrap up on what comes next for Canadian conservatives. There's been some controversy in, in recent days about whether you and others are essentially calling for a fracturing of the conservative party. The source here seems to be the final chapter of your book entitled The Return of the Liberal Conservative Party, in which, amongst other things, you discuss the prospects of a new center right party in Canada. The press release accompanying the book states the following, quote, I think the best outcome would be for the Conservative Party to choose the center-right path. The Liberal NDP deal has opened up a huge window of opportunity to get blue Liberal voters into our tent. But the party could also split and see the creation of a new party. I suggest it could be like McDonald's Liberal Conservative Party that founded Canada. Tasha, help me and our listeners understand your point. What are you saying? Do we need a new center-right party in Canada?
2: No, we don't. In fact, I say that in the book, it's it's quite clear that that is not the preferred option, because if you do that, you end up fracturing the vote. And we've seen this movie before with the Reform Party. Most recently, the Liberals were in power for 13 years as a result. And that's usually what's happened in, in the history of Canadian politics when you've seen a, a new center-right party emerge or a new right-wing party emerge. And that's why I say it's not what I'd like to see happen. I to see the bridge made between the populists and the conservatives and find a way to to keep everyone in the same family. That being said, uh, you know, people are worried about this issue, which is why I address it. Uh, The party, when I say the Liberal Conservative Party, it's a bit tongue-in-cheek because that is the name of the original Party of Confederation that Johnny MacDonald founded the liberal conservative, small L, and it was uh, a party that represented, as he described it, progressive conservative values. He described that back in 1867. He used the words progressive conservative. The party then became known as the conservative party. It dropped the liberal piece. The liberal was not what we consider big L liberal. The liberal was sort of uh, views of like sort of Lockean views of personal freedom and that kind of thing. Classical liberal philosophy that infused the conservative party of the day. So his party was this progressive, conservative, forward-looking, but incrementally, you know, changing party that sought to not only advance conservative views, but also keep the country together, knit together this confederation that has been challenging since its inception. So to me, that is where we're at. I'd like to see our party look like that. I'd like to see our party, you know, be that big tent, that can address issues of unity, but also focus on economic development and inflation and all the other challenges that we have. And I think we can do that if we, you know, we take the right path, as I call it, and we take this language of opportunity and we look for the three voter bases that we need. But I worry, and other people do worry, which is why I raised the issue that, you know, this, the party may fracture again. So it's a cautionary tale, I guess, what I'm trying to, to start the conversation around. But I've been very clear of that I do not want us to start a new party because it sets you back. And it will ultimately, you know, ultimately comes back to the same thing of what kind of party we need. And we have one. Let's work with it. Let's stay together, keep the family together and, and you know, win the next election because we don't want to lose a fourth time.
1: The book is Right Path, How Conservatives Can Unite, Inspire, and Take Canada Forward. Tesha Carrington, thank you so much for joining us at Hub Dialogues.
2: Thank you so much, Sean. It's been a pleasure.
1: Thank you for listening
0: to this episode of The Hub Dialogues, brought to you by The Hub, Canada's leading source for analysis and insights on public policy. We hope that you enjoyed this episode. Maybe it expanded your horizons, opened your mind to some new thinking and ideas. Please don't forget to share this episode with your friends and family. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and leave us a rating and review. That would be greatly appreciated. I'm the Hub's Executive Director, Rudyard Griffiths. The host of today's program was Sean Spear, the Hub's Editor-at-Large. This episode was produced by Amal Atar Guzman. Our audio producers are Alex Glutch and David Matta. Thanks for listening.